They tried to make me go to rehab. No, they didn't, actually. I'm lying, but we'll be talking about that a bit today. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, if you couldn't tell from the intro, we will be discussing Amy Winehouse's second studio album, Back to Black. Also, sadly, her final studio album released in her lifetime because we tragically lost her at a young age. But we're here to talk about Back to Black today. So for a bit of a preamble, we uh, both decided that we wanted to do this one. This was a runner-up choice for Corey, and it was a curiosity of mine because it's one I'm embarrassed to admit I had not listened to all the way through until this week. There you go. That one blew my mind. When you said that when we were going through, it was so crazy just for you guys because we lived it. But Charlie was like, hey, man, what do you think about doing Back to Black? And I said, I kid you not, if I didn't pick Franz Ferdinand, we would have been doing Back to Black. So the universe brought that one through. But when Charlie said, I've never listened to this album 100%. I thought he was messing with me because we were coming off of the Jimmy world where neither of us had listened. I thought he was busting my chops, but nope. He's never heard it all the way through until now. Yeah, so... (laughs) But before we get to what I think about the album uh, from this first impression, I guess you could say, We're going to do what we normally do and give a bit of background. So, like I said earlier, this is Amy Winehouse's second album. And it was a bit of a departure from the first one. The first album she did, she worked with Salam Remy on. We talked about some of his work when we talked about the Fugees and the score, because he produced quite a bit of that album with the Fugees. And that was primarily a jazz-influenced album, but with this album, Amy Winehouse was really influenced by the music of the 60s, especially girl groups such as the Ronettes and the Supremes. However, the lyrics weren't going to be quite as peppy as those because she had been dating Blake Fielder Civil for a while, but they broke up for a brief period of time. And this really inspired Amy to write. And... That she did. She wrote most of this album all by herself. So uh, she was really looking internally and uh, just going there with it. That was really what her whole goal was. And uh, Salam Remy came back to work on this album. But she also worked with somebody who she had some mutual connections with, a guy named Mark Ronson. And uh, to say they mutually benefited from each other would be an understatement because. They definitely did, and Ronson still is a top producer in the game to this day. Did they own a production company together? Did I read that correctly? I don't think they owned it together, but they were connected somehow with okay. it. Okay. In uh, it blew me away way. to think that they were they were owning a production company just because of age at this point. But I, I was curious to see if that was the case. Yeah, they were old souls, but they were pretty young at the time. For real. So, yes, and uh, that's basically the short of the whole album. And uh, uh, the Dap Kings, who played with the artist Sharon Jones, played on a lot of this album, which helped give it a distinct retro sound, but they managed to make it contemporary at the same time. And uh, yeah, as much as I listened to this album coming in, I thought we were going to have notes upon notes upon notes, sort of similar to where we were on the hip hop albums, where we would cite three or four different songs throughout each song that that was used, you know, sampled at the very most. And then learning that it was all types of musicians, but including the Dap Kings playing the backing on this and that in fact, even though it sounded so rooted in Motown and the 60s girls sound, it was it was straight up their own product, which was amazing to learn. Yes. And uh, this album was pretty groundbreaking. This really kind of laid the groundwork for a British soul revival of the late 2000s and early 2010s. We saw that most notably with Adele breaking through, but that's a different album and artists to discuss that we're not going to get into too much today. So uh, the album was released in the fall of 2007 throughout Europe in October and November, different release dates all over the place, which is a bit confusing. And it actually wasn't released in the United States until March of 2007. 
she went on to say that the marketing throughout this whole process on this album was quote unquote straight shit. She said it was all over the place and she used some pretty pretty powerful words to describe that. I I believe it. I think what she was talking about and what in uh, track number three, I guess she would call it fuckery, as she said in that song. <laughs> Perfect word to sum it up. Fuckery all around in the marketing of this album. Do you remember when this album came out? So I was 10 when this album came out, and uh, I recall seeing the name of the album on iTunes because I would just look at the time because it was very new to me. I had gotten an iPod not long before this album came out, but I wasn't super closely following current pop hits. I was very much into my 80s pop exploration at this point in time. But even then, I'm not sure I would have heard these because uh, it wasn't quite for everyone, I guess. It wasn't the biggest thing at the time. And I actually first remember hearing of Amy Winehouse from reading People magazine at my grandparents' house. Heard. And uh, what was covered was not usually her music, of course, because it was People magazine. A lot of it was her personal troubles with Blake Field or Civil. They were married at the time. I remember reading all about that and seeing photos of her. And I have to say, just looking at her, I found her kind of scary looking at the time. She had lost a lot of weight by then, too. So. Yeah, but just, no, just, like, the hair and the face oh. was like, what? <laughs> like, just that eyeliner really freaked me out. I thought, who is this woman? It, and I wasn't compelled to listen to her music based on that, I will say. I remember it being, like, uh, it just wasn't on my super radar. And then hearing it, or just hearing, not necessarily rehab, I, either the second or third single on this album just hearing it out there and and having that hip-hop love too and that music love and then of course more than anything a love for the powerful woman singer um I, this is one of those ones where i was looking around at people like why the fuck did not anybody tell me about this wait, 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 where what you knew about this you knew about this <laughs> uh i remember just it taking she scooped me off my feet so to speak the first time i really listened to her uh, not even just sitting down with the album. I was like, oh, I love her sound. Let's find out more about her. Yes. And uh, you weren't the only one who felt that way. This album was a huge success in the UK Heard. in a way that we can't understand because we're not in the UK. But yeah, this was a number one album and it's now sold 4.2 million copies in the UK, which is incredible. I mean, that's impressive for a u.s album but in a smaller country like the uk that's mind-boggling to have an album sell that much and at the time this album did decently in the u.s it made it up to seven on the album charts at first and then it made it up to number two after the 2008 grammys yeah which she killed right she went yes out. she did she won five grammys that year most awarded artists, including three of the big four awards, Best New Artist, Song of the Year, and Record of the Year, both for Rehab. This album actually lost Album of the Year to Herbie Hancock's River, The Joni Leathers. And uh, my guess as to why this happened was because of her personal troubles, there was some controversy surrounding the decision to even give Amy Winehouse these awards. There were people who felt she shouldn't have gotten them because of her personal problems, which is ridiculous because uh, that shouldn't reflect in the music. If you made a quality album, it should be awarded. We shouldn't be thinking about whether or not the artist is a drug and addict, alcoholic and all that. That shouldn't have been a factor. Yep. We run into that a lot on this podcast. We really do because, uh, I think her image was threatening to some people, and especially because she didn't hide who she was for anybody. Her candidness, uh, I mean, period, uh, in life, in speaking to the the press, you know, doing interviews there, and then um, for the most in her music, that candidness, you know, it, it's, it was mind-blowing. Yeah, and while we're on that topic, I know we said we weren't going to talk about her too much, but I am going to go here. I do have a hot tea take about another British soul singer, Adele. 
Okay. I love Adele. This is not meant in any way to be disrespectful towards her because I think she's fantastic. However, I do think a big part of the reason that she got some of the success that eluded Amy Winehouse at the time had to do with her image being safer yeah. and whatnot because she didn't look threatening. Her songs didn't sound threatening in any way. She wasn't really candid about any having troubles with drugs or alcohol. If she did have them, she was hiding it or does. I don't know. And I think that is a big part of uh, why Winehouse's U.S. success was a bit limited at the time. But as time has gone on, this album has just continued to grow in stature. It's now sold 3 million copies in the U.S. and over 16 million worldwide. And uh, Winehouse's untimely death in 2011 at the age of 27 really convince people to go back and listen to what she was singing about and since then there have been documentaries about her more than one so this is one that's just kind of continued to grow in stature and it was ranked number 33 on rolling stone's 500 greatest albums of all time list which is very high ranking very impressive I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to look back and I'll let everybody know next week, but that's up there for one of the highest albums on that 500 list that we've done. Uh, inside of the top 40, I, yeah. maybe we have one or two that we've done, I think. I think that might be the highest. If one comes to me, Yeah, I'll yeah. point it out, but no, I think that is the highest that we've done so far on that list. I got a hot take question for you. And I was going to ask earlier, but just speaking about her uh, previously, super hot take question. Is there an Adele if we didn't have the UK success of Amy Winehouse and her untimely death? Yes, I do think there's an Adele. Yeah. Yeah, I think 21 was pretty undeniable. And Amy hadn't recorded for a while First of all, she didn't have an album really in the works. There was something rumored, but in those last months, she wasn't, there wasn't a follow-up out the back to black. And that did like give Adele a chance to rise up and do her thing. But also I think 21 was undeniable and it was a better time to be a female artist because there were a lot of female hit makers at that time. By 2011, you've got Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Kesha, they had all emerged since Amy Winehouse had kind of disappeared from yeah. recording music. So it was a better time for Adele. I think all those factors led to it. But I mean, 21's a classic in its own right. I agree. I I, I don't necessarily take either side. I, I lean more towards what you're saying. I just thought I'd ask you because I think it's an interesting topic to discuss. I agree. And it is something to think about. And like, had Winehouse lived, would she have had Adele's success? We won't ever know the answer to that. But I do think Adele would have gotten there with or without Winehouse. I think she would have taken over because uh, at that point in time, it was the perfect time for that. And uh, she took over and rightfully so, in my opinion. A hot take of mine here is I don't know if... Uh, if Amy Winehouse would have had success like Adele did, unless she kept, this is purely my opinion, unless she would have kept remaking herself or her sound, because I don't want to tell you how I super feel about this album, but this album is a work of art. And if this would have, if that same sound would have been followed or would have been the, the album on her next or even her next two, I think it would have fell flat because this was such a unique sound and a unique work of art here. I don't know if it would have continued success. I mean, I agree with that. And frankly, speaking of her again, I think you can kind of make that case for Adele because I've enjoyed the other stuff that she's done, but I don't think she's come close to 21 at <laughs> all. Heard. But that's a discussion for another time. So I think... Uh, you're right about that because uh, she just poured her heart and soul into this and it really came through for many people. And that's why this album's 
so highly regarded to this day and is seen as an essential lesson for many. I love it. That's why we do it. So we can talk about stuff like this. Yes. For you guys, because we talk about stuff like this at the bar all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't gone on too much about Adele yet, but you know <laughs> this, is, this is true. Take it back. We don't. We don't. We haven't really talked about Adele much at all. But well, that can be due to change. But Heard we'll that. discuss that later. Heard that. But nope, we're talking about AB Winehouse, and with all that out of the way, it is now time to get into it and do our track by track of the album and. Uh, Back to Black begins with the song I referenced in the intro, Rehab. This is an autobiographical song about how Amy Winehouse refused to go to rehab. And the craziest thing about this song is Mark Ronson said that she told a story to him about her dad wanting her to go to rehab. And she had the hook in this conversation. It's like, they told me to go to rehab. I said, no, no, no. And Mark Ronson said, that's a song right there. And uh, by golly, he was right. It was a song that she ended up writing herself. And uh, yeah, it's got this classic soul sound. The lyrics even reference Ray Charles and Donny Hathaway in the first verse. And uh, yeah, this was a pretty natural choice for lead single because that is a killer hook. The fact that she thought of that just in a conversation is incredible to me. Well, and and look at a great producer too, that's like, or, or great musicians period that are just strolling down the road next to each other and like, ho, 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 hold on to that. We got to take that in the studio with us. Um, you start off this record, like you said, with a bang, a big old bang. And, and we're off to the races right out of the gate with the number one single. And for me, and, and I'll take you guys through this journey as we go through, but for me, this album, we are literally getting a first-person view, the most candid, beautiful first-person view that I can remember on an album of a time period in someone's life. So at this point, when they were walking, they were actually out to get a gift for Blake. Yeah. Is that his first Blake name? Field or Civil. Yes. yes. Blake's his first so name. They're out to get a gift for him. At this point, there's still love in the air. And it's just a very happy chat that turns into a beautiful and, and powerful song. So that's the first, the first glimpse that we get into her life at this point. And what a great way to start. Oh yeah. And, uh, this one's become omnipresent, and obviously this was the lead single. What else would have been the lead single? Because this song is catchy. Whether or not you can relate to the lyrics, it's so easy to enjoy because you can't get that hook out of your head. But this is very interesting. So in the UK, this song was a hit on its own, top 10. But in the US, when this was released, there was a remix done with Jay-Z. And I didn't hear this song when it was out the first time around. But the first time I did hear this song was, I think, the day of or the day after her death. I was in the car with my family and the Top 40 station was on and they played the remix of Rehab with Jay-Z. And in retrospect, it seems so bizarre that this song would have Jay-Z on it. It doesn't need a rap verse. But that is a reminder that at this point in time, if you wanted to make it in the U.S., that was kind of what you needed to do because the Amy Winehouse sound was a callback. It was not the most modern R&B sound because at the time, the hits were being done by your Fergie, Beyonce, Rihanna, and Amy Winehouse just wasn't doing that. Yeah, you also got Salam Remy. You know, he's in the mix, hardcore, speaking to these guys, talking her up, but he's also got these beats. So it's almost inevitable uh, that we see that. Plus, a lot of these beats have that Remy hip hop, um, neo Motown. I forget the word that was actually used, like, oh, synthesized Motown. I, I really liked that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these guys get to hear these beats and they're like, oh, sharing music. The thing was, this is a Ronson song strictly, though. Oh, really? Yeah. I stand corrected. That that 
changes things around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and, well, that's true. It's true. There was a time for pop and mainstream hip hop to to be hit the uh, the ears of the listeners in America. That makes sense. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how this month in the 2000s, we've kind of done the albums that were slightly not for that mainstream audience a bit. They went in different directions. I've noticed that we've done that this month. Oh, that's, that's a great, that's a great uh, introspective one on, on I mean, these four. That's truth. Yeah, even for Britney, it's true because yeah. she was doing something totally different. So yeah. good for us. Yes. <laughs> and good for the listeners. Thank you guys for putting that Jimmy Eat World in there. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's safe to say we like this more than Jimmy Eat World, fortunately. But we, we shall see. You never know. <laughs> right. But this all worked out. This song was a top 10 hit in the US. It made it up to number nine and it was 74 for the year end. But of course, it's endured uh, and uh, people still love this song. But Interestingly, as we'll see, it is not at the end of the day the anthem from this album like you would think it would be. It's actually ended up being another song, kind of surprisingly, but also not surprisingly. But we're not there yet. Before we get to that point, we are on to one of the album's signature songs, You Know I'm No Good. This is a uh, a 180 from Rehab Lyrically. This is just a self-loathing anthem about Amy cheating on a good man, but she's cheating herself. And uh, I told you I was trouble. You know I'm no good. And uh, I just, these lyrics are great. Just straightforward, lay it out all on the table. There's no wondering what is this about. It's all right there for you. And just what a beautiful song. Beautiful song. I love this beat. I've always loved this beat. Before I get into where I feel the next part of her story is in this, I love this beat. And then when Ghostface picked it up and did a version of this with her on More Fish, I think he, he's got like three verses in there. And I, I mean, I, I ate that up with a spoon. I love that. Yeah, you're talking about a 180. We're talking about a 180 in her demeanor. And this is the, in my opinion, the first piece of the main theme of this album, and that is love lost. Uh, whether it's trying to find it, whether it's mourning, whether it's yelling at it, this is the first piece uh, that we get on the album that starts to tell this love lost uh, theme and, and and hash it out. And it hashes it out so great because it's self-infliction. She's yelling at herself almost throughout this whole entire thing and also yelling at the man uh or the love you know i told you i told you i told you this one hits man i love it oh yeah and uh this was the album's second single again not hard to see why it was a single and it first charted at 90 on the hot 100 uh, but after the grammys it peaked at 77 because she performed the song there that was in the u.s um this one definitely should have been bigger the first time around, but I'm guessing that radio just didn't support her because of uh, her personal issues. They decided, no, not a good look for us. But at the end of the day, time has been kind to this song, and it's now regarded as a modern classic, and uh, rightfully so. Yeah. And it's been covered a bunch of times, too, most notably by Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't see that one. That's awesome. Yeah. A lot of her yeah. stuff's covered, man. A lot of her stuff is loved. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And interestingly, speaking of covers, the next song might sound like a cover based on the title, but it's not. Me and Mr. Jones. This is not related to the early 70s hit Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul. She could have easily done that and probably would have killed it, but that's not what she did. This song actually has possibly the best opening lines ever. What kind of fuckery is this? You made me miss the Slick Rick gig. <laughs> this song was originally titled Fuckery. And they yes. pulled it and they were like, you can't be fuckery. They were like, what? No, we can. And we're just going to call it fuckery. But no, unfortunately, yeah. I lost out. Yeah, Remy had to... Uh, be the one to say like no it's okay we don't have to call it fuckery but amy didn't like that but he had to say no it, it's okay but another tie-in with this podcast 
Mr. Jones is none other than our friend Nasir Jones, a.k.a. Nas, who, yeah. if you haven't listened to our Illmatic episode, I think that would be a great thing to do right after you're done listening to this one, because... Oh, yeah. uh, that is just awesome. And they were friends. And actually, the last single ever released with Winehouse's vocals on it was Nas's Cherry Wine. So uh, that's something. And this seems to be the most popular non-single from the album based on streams. Yeah, I don't understand that either. <laughs> I do have an affinity for that reggae drum and snare and the reggae tones in the back of this song or throughout this song I love. Um, but I never understood why I didn't get love like that, man. Um, it's, it's, it's a jammer. Uh, you know, we talked about the Nas stuff uh, and I, I told you about the reggae love on it, but I love this song for another reason too. And that's because it's the only time ever that I can remember I heard 60s doo-wop background singers sing a callback dick to me <laughs> i die every time i hear them say dick to me i lose it it's so beautiful it's so in the key of winehouse at this point and uh god i i, I love this sound uh talking in the story here we are you know that guy that we were just talking to and telling how we were no good or how she was no good is now fucking her vibe up and she ain't having that shit, especially not, you know, she missed the Slick Rick show. She ain't missing the fucking Nas show. So get in line. And, and, and we're starting to see this Love Lost theme pick up, pick up its stride. I love, I, I love this song. I hope you played it on the way to your Nas concert. Well, you know, we didn't play much because we were stuck in traffic and it was sort more... It was more of a angry silence and, you know, with 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 jokes here and there. Um, but this would have been a perfect one to play. <laughs> if you see him again, you have to play me and Mr. Jones on I the way. <laughs> I definitely will. I definitely will. <laughs> yes, another banger for sure. And speaking of songs that don't get much love, next up is one that didn't. It's actually the least streamed song on the standard edition of the album which i don't agree with by the way this one is just friends and uh, this is another infidelity song and she's trying to pull out of the affair she's saying the guilt will kill you if she don't first to this guy they're better off as just friends and uh, john pareles from the new york times uh, wrote this about the song with her vocal she makes songs like this Games of tone and phrasing, withholding a line and then breezing through it, stretching out a note over her backing band's steady beat. Which, perfect description of the song. This is a great soul singer you are hearing doing this and uh, just elevating it all the way. And uh, this one's been described as ska soul, which I definitely hear with the horns and... Uh, what beautiful horns. I love the directness of the lyrics, too. This one's a winner for me, and Pareles really summed it up for me when talking about her vocal here. It really is masterful. It's it's a perfect summary as well of, of the vocal because the first listen to this, I think most listeners would think of it as a happy-go-lucky song about friendship, unless you're really getting in on these lyrics. It doesn't because of the melody and because of her presentation, like he was saying, it doesn't give way to sound like an infidelity song. I like to connect this song to No Good. And I really like that they put a buffer in between of her talking to someone else because I believe this is the same person that she's telling in No Good that she's, she's no good for. And now she's trying to pull out, which is the craziest take on the friend zone ever and she sang it like a songbird uh i i love this one i, I can't I, again you get to these these deep tracks or these deep cuts i guess you can say on her album that don't get play and it's just it's crazy to think why not if if you like rehab or if you you like any of another track on this album it's sonically sound enough where you shouldn't really vary throughout the tracks you know um 
too much. Uh, again, that ska slash reggae sound I love too. But you know, it it it's not too far off or too far from where it's going next. So I don't understand that. I'm with yeah. you on that. I mean, I'm guessing people skipped it to get to the next song, which I mean, I kind of get it, but this isn't a skip. You should listen to it if you haven't. Most of. So that's what I got to say about Just Friends. But as I said, I think a lot of people skip it just to go to the next song, which is the title track, Back to Black. And uh, this is the title track for a reason. This is the emotional centerpiece of the album it is a pure wall of sound this is definitely very phil specter-esque in its production pure 60s and the intro this song came later but love song by sarah Bareilles sounds so much like this song i can't be the only one who's heard that heard. but anyway in the song, Amy's reflecting on Blake, her ex at the time, but eventually her husband for a brief period. They broke up because he went back to his ex. And so she's saying, while well, he's back to her, she's going back to black. And uh, that's likely the dark place, drinking, depression. Some have bought heroin, but that's been yeah. debunked. Yeah. So it's not heroin. Um, and what's so brilliant about the song is it's, for the most part, relatively upbeat musically, and it's just this brilliant juxtaposition of these heartbreaking vocals and lyrics against this very nice upbeat melody, but then that bridge comes and it all slows down, and this is the most obvious influence I can hear on Adele. I totally think Adele was influenced for, by this song when she did Rumor Has It, that Breakdown sounds a lot like this one and not a bad place to get inspiration from at all because, uh, yeah, this is a brilliant song and Motown and Phil Spector didn't get this dark, even though Phil Spector did dark shit in his own life, but <laughs> that's a different discussion. Um, I mean, yeah, this one's just grown in stature over time. It was the third single and it was not the biggest hit on the album, but... It didn't even chart anywhere in the U.S. initially, but now it's the most streamed song here. It has over 828 million streams on Spotify. Oof. L last I checked. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I got confused. That's the number for the YouTube video on Spotify. The song's still well over 600 million, though, so that's insane. Insane. Mm -mm -mm. Back to Black, man, I'll tell you. This is the literal interpretation, not even interpretation. That's the wrong word to use. We get to see through the clearest window exactly what's going on in her life. She doesn't leave out anything. It reminds me of the level of veracity that I get in uh, Alanis Morissette, remind you. Or you know, uh, I'm not there to remind you. You ought to know. You ought to know. Thank you. That that level of yelling at somebody and being like, "Screw you!" Like, while you go do her, I'm gonna go back to us, kind of thing. Totally broken on this. Um, Winehouse doesn't necessarily scream it as she as she sings it to us throughout this, um, but this is the breakup song. This is it. You can see, you can chart this on a timeline in her life. You know, this is the this is him leaving, uh, going back to his ex, and uh, and her trying to move on. And, and this is where the next couple of songs are derived in this period of loss and trying to figure out what's going on. Such a great. I mean, we're five tracks into this song, and we really ha I haven't really talked or touched about. Well, I think this might be a better fit here or this. I, I never have that thought going through this album, especially not at this point of the album. It's so perfectly put together and just a, a straight moving story. Can't say enough about that. Oh, I completely agree. And I'm going to mention a bit about the structure in a bit, but one more tidbit I have to mention. So a song this popular has obviously been covered multiple times. <laughs> And uh, I just want to say this because it makes me happy in a weird way. 
So in 2013, Beyonce and Andre 3000 covered this song for Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. Ooh. And uh, it was slowed down significantly. And I don't know why they did that, but this is the part that makes me happy. It seems to be one of the things pe- that Beyonce did not turn to gold in the mind of everybody. Oh, really? Yeah. Which kind of makes me happy because I'm not dissing Beyonce by any stretch, but I do think too often people think everything she does is fantastic. And uh, that's just not the case. So I'm happy to know there was something that people think she didn't turn to gold. I don't remember that. I'll have to go check that out. It's on the Great Gatsby soundtrack? Yes. Heard that. Yes. But that's me just being heady and wanting to make a point about Beyonce. (laughs) Get her. Watch out. Hey, I don't hate her because, you know, you can't break my soul too much, so... (laughs) but anyway moving on to this album we've got love is a losing game track six and i want to say this is where i want to talk about the album structure i feel like being the old soul that she was winehouse structured this like a vinyl record album because i feel like this is a perfect ender to side one i guess you could say and it's a low-key ballad where love is like into gambling Great metaphor right there. And uh, this just allows that voice to take center stage in a beautiful, straightforward way once again. It sure does. We get to slow down. We get a nice little electric guitar over some drums. We get, for me, we get the first real intimate track as far as a softer feeling of her she lets her guard down a little bit on this and it's a it's a softer track from her as far as where it's at on the album I, you you stole the words right out like it ends the first half of this album on this cool somber note um that it, it's it's so beautiful and the gambling to loving that you're always going to lose at one point you're always if you're going to gamble you're going to end up losing at one point or another and how that tracks to love is amazing is amazing another good one six in can't i can't say anything bad yet. yes and well we were not the only ones who liked this song we were actually in quite good company so on a radio program called desert island discs george michael named this as one of his and then he had picked a and was asked if you have to choose one what would it be he picks this one love is a losing game nice. and uh, it wasn't the only 80s pop legend who liked this song. The other was the purple one himself, one of my favorite people ever, Prince. Prince actually took to covering this song. He liked it so much. And uh, on the last night of his 21 Nights in London residency in 2007, Amy Winehouse joined Prince on stage to perform Love is a Losing Game with him. Holy moly. Would have loved to be a fly on that wall. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yes, that's just uh, surreal that that happened, but I'm so glad that it did. Yeah, no, I'm literally blown away. Like, I, I'm I'm fantasizing. I'm, I'm imagining what that would be like. All the way around. The green room, Prince's house afterwards, where their pancakes... Uh, oh no this was at this was at an arena this residency was at the o2 in london no i I know no i'm talking about the charlie murphy story of of how prince used to take everybody home but oh i'm sorry no you're good what a great (laughs) pairing of artists what a what a wild beautiful pairing oh man is there is there uh recordings of that yeah audio there is and i think a grainy video on youtube too Heard that. I have to check that one out. Not the grainy video, but <laughs> I'd love to hear that one. Of course. And uh, the song was also covered by Sam Smith in 2015 for the deluxe version of In the Lonely Hour, which I think is pretty cool wow. because Sam Smith is on fire right now with Unholy. Heard that. But this was the fifth single in the UK and Ireland. It was 33 in the UK, and it was the album's lowest charting single. And I think a part of that had to do with the fact that for Mark Ronson's album, Amy recorded Valerie, and that was a huge UK hit. And I think the success of Valerie kind of 
killed actual momentum for singles from back to black because uh, there was no following that. That was too undeniable and rightfully so. Valerie is amazing. Love that song. Oh, yeah. Why don't you come on over, Valerie? Yeah. Uh, yes. She kills it. She kills it. You good? <laughs> but now we're going to flip it on over the side, too, because that's what she was thinking. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, that is with track number seven, Tears Dry on Their Own, a more upbeat song than the last one. This samples the chord progression from Ain't No Mountain High Enough, enough so that the writers of that song, Ashford and Simpson, got writing credits for this one as well. And this is another great juxtaposition of that bouncy love song melody with the breakup lyrics. But here, she's more trying to pick herself up, saying the tears will dry on their own, and I'm just going to keep going. And uh, not quite as impactful as the title track, but I think it gets the job done. I think this is another nice song here. What do you think of it? Um, this speaks to my subconscious of the music lover even though it's not even so much the subconscious hearing that uh ain't no mountain high enough just the drums and, and the bells early on boom 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 you're already expecting something so when she flips it on on its head and does her run on it it's amazing enough at that point for me this is the part in the story where she's yelling at herself in the mirror you know this is the one where it's like now nah, never let that happen again not some dumb guy ever again come on girl let's go pick it up um and and, and really letting herself know yelling at herself uh, you know for 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 lack of better words um i love that it's on such an upbeat again we, we go to where she mixes it up and her tone doesn't necessarily say what her words are saying and you really really have to listen for that and this is another uh perfect example in my opinion especially on top of the ain't no mountain high enough which as a listener you're already like you're already in a happy place you know oh yeah most yeah. definitely and uh the trivia about this song is that the video was interesting because it features her waiting in a motel room, and this signified the rooms that she would wait for Blakefield or Civil in, which, wow, that's deep. And there were two soon-to-be-famous extras in the video named Jeffree Star and Trisha Paytas. Oh, yeah. I know, yes, definitely two people not worthy of sharing space with Amy Winehouse, because uh, what? How young was Jeffree Star at that point? Do you know? Oh, not even 21, I don't think. No, right? Wow. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Oh, that's kind of makes me shudder a bit, knowing what we know about those people now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, um, the worst concert I ever went to, I saw Trisha Paytas live in concert because my friend Ariel wanted to go. And was so excited, and I said, okay, I'll go with you, and so we went to Philly, and oh, it was so horrible, that bitch cannot sing, Oof, and the people there were very obnoxious, it was just not a good time for me, and even though Ariel wanted to go, she would agree with me that Trisha Paytas is no Amy Winehouse. <laughs> so... I know she'd agree with me. She loves her Amy, so. <laughs> but, yeah, that's Tears Dry on Their Own. So, I didn't cry after the Trisha Paytas concert, but I could have, <laughs> but the tears would have dried on their own, hopefully. <laughs> but, time to move on to us talking about good music, not that. So, we're on the track number eight, Wake Up Alone. This one was co-written with Paul O'Duffy. Interesting, this is one of the only co-writes here that is not because of a sample, the only other one being Back to Black. Ronson's the co-writer on that one. And uh, this explores yet another facet of the heartbreak. It's this woman, she's keeping busy while she's broken up. It's like, I'm going to be fine during the day. I'm going to keep going and 
clean, cook, all that good stuff. But it's still hard to wake up alone. And uh, just another beautiful vocal performance. And I love how she really covers every facet of her heartbreak uh, in this album. Every song takes on another angle of it, I feel like. And I just uh, find that quite brilliant. And I also love those girl group backing vocals, turning those sounds on their head. I love it. Yeah, this is this is my montage song. You know, this is her trying to to do everything, keep those terrible thoughts away, and they creep in when the night comes. And and as a song, it's a, it's a really cool song. Like you said, you get that '60s doo wop uh, behind it. Definitely a cool one. Definitely for her as inside of the story, it's where I want her to be okay. Like, come on, it's gonna be all right. <laughs> you know, you're getting there, and and we shall see where where her story goes. Yes, <laughs> and well, with that. I guess we'll see where the story goes with the next song, Some Unholy War. This one has a pretty interesting backstory. The idea came to Winehouse after hearing a radio broadcast about the war in Afghanistan. She heard the term holy war during this, and uh, she thought about her relationship and how can I apply that in a song? And so she called it an unholy war, but if he were fighting it, she would stand by him. So I guess Amy Winehouse would have made a great military wife, which is good to know. <laughs> um, this is the gun to the head least favorite for me. I think it's an interesting concept. I like the backstory behind it, but it's pretty short. And not all of these are really long songs, but this one almost feels a little unfinished to me. It's just okay. Yeah, it's a really, really cool thought. And it speaks to this love, whether it's good or bad, This how powerful this love is in her soul that she could hear a BBC report on the Afghanistan war and immediately think of her own relationship and then spin it and do a narrative on it. Like, and then on top of that, started off and be like, you know what? If it was a war, though, I'd be right behind them. Um, it's, it's. I'm not going to use the word toxic because it ain't my love, but it sure as hell sounds like a toxic love. And you feel for her. You feel for her inside of this because she's almost back to kidding herself again, uh, as far as the story goes uh, on the album. But I'm with you, man. This is the first and only time in this whole entire album that I feel like that 60s sound is recycled a little bit on this track. It doesn't feel produced like the rest of the album and it doesn't feel unique like the rest of the album. And it's, it's actually surprising um, because it, it, it unfinished is a great way to put it. Uh, it sounds unfinished and it, you could have, I, I respect your narrative, but I think you could have done that narrative without this one. You know, yes. I, I, this this could have been off the album and I don't think anybody would have noticed. Yeah, but it has more streams than just friends, which I don't agree with at all. It's crazy. That's my issue with it. It's like this should be the one with the least streams. Sorry, but Nerd. that's my hot tea take here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Some unholy war indeed. Yes. But fortunately, I think those 60s sounds are better used in the next track, He Can Only Hold Her. This samples a song called My Girl, She's a Fox by Richard and Robert Poindexter. No relation to Buster Poindexter, I don't think. That would have been kind of cool, but we're not feeling hot, hot, hot here. <laughs> so this one's really unique because she switches perspective and does it from the third person, and uh, this is something that I love because this is something that my beloved Stevie Nicks does really well. She looks at her issues from this outside perspective and tells it as the narrator, even if it is her that she's saying about. And uh, I love that Amy did that here. It was uh, nice to do that. And so as a result, this song lyrically gives me a Stevie Nicks vibe, uh, but not musically because it has that pure soul sound that just works so well. My only complaint here is I wish the song were a bit longer. I feel like there could be like a coda or something to really round it out a bit more. But other than that, really cool track. 
Yeah, that third person perspective is so cool. And I like to think because it's her story and she's doing this third person perspective that choosing to put it on top of she's a fox says something about her looking at herself. Um, because for me, this is the end of our story here. And this is the you're getting over him song. You know what I'm saying? Or you're getting over the love song. And for her to put that on top of She's a Fox, I think really speaks to the power of that. I love the he tries to pacify her because what's inside her never dies. Uh, you, you talking about getting over anybody that that's the truth right there. Don't let them don't let them kill what's inside of you because it's not gonna not gonna happen um i love this song i love this song so much really really great take by her yes and uh, interestingly initially in the u.s the album kind of ended with this song there was silence after it followed by a couple of remixes of the first two tracks but in the uk there was an 11th song and this one is called Addicted, and there's a reason this was not included on the U.S. edition in 2007, because this song is about how Amy loves the ganja. There is no metaphor here. When you smoke all my weed, man, you got to call the green man. Dude, I, <laughs> I love this song so much. It's so fun to hear her do a hidden track just about loving some ganja. I mean hot tea take you could put this up against hits from the bong i want to get high you could put this up against crazy wild weed anthems and it would hit just the same i laugh out loud listening to this song she says it's got me addicted does more than any dick did and i geek man i like it's such a wholehearted just right in your face like i love weed and I can get mine and you can get yours, but don't smoke mine. And I'll be at home with my homegrown. She has fun. And I like laughing out loud to this one. A cool little hidden weed anthem by good old Amy Winehouse. <laughs> yeah, definitely showcases her sense of humor. And uh, I definitely know why it wasn't on the U.S. release in 2007, because uh, er weed was definitely still not even close to being legalized. It's much closer now, as we all know. But anyway, the only really negative thing I can say is, does it fit in with the rest of the songs here? No, not at all. But as you said, it's kind of a hidden track. So yeah. in that regard, you gotta love it. Uh, also, if, if if I if I think about it in a whole, I'd like to think that she poured her heart out. You know, she left it all <laughs> on this album and then was like, fuck it, lit up a joint and was like, let me make a fun little song about smoking this duba right here. And uh, <laughs> it showcases their sense of humor. That's such a great way to put it because it does. And it's it's that levity after this whole entire story that I love. And I think why it hits so happy for me too. Oh yes. And uh, what a way to end an album. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say is there is a deluxe edition on streaming. I don't want to go too, too into the songs because most of them are actually covers and a couple of alternate takes. Uh, and uh, I have to say what's interesting about the covers is most of them are ska covers, which uh, really dives into it. And it's pure ska, not ska soul, not restrained like Just Friends. This is pure straight up ska. Yeah. The most notable of the tracks is probably the live edition of Valerie, which I don't like as much as the recorded one, which is much more upbeat and fun. But it's of note if you enjoyed this. I do think her version of To Know Him Is To Love Him is absolutely beautiful and a nice tribute to the Spectre sound that she paid homage to so nicely on this album. Yeah, I think the Monkey Man is really the only one that hits me in a weird way because it's almost too much going on. Um, <laughs> but those demo tracks, uh, it's a cool little behind the scenes, you know, you get to hear it. I mean, this album was beautiful, but it was very, very produced and layered and done well. Her voice, not so much, but everything else that was going on was was really put together well. So to hear these demo tracks and these stripped down like live uh, at yeah. BBC One, it, it's neat to hear those. Yeah, and I mean, admittedly, her influences were heavy production value. Oh, Motown yeah. and Spectre, that is all the way. Oh, yeah. Heavy production, but it created brilliant music. What can we say? And 
Think Back to Black is brilliant too. What is your grade for the album? Ooh, my grade is an A. Um, to be able to not only own your own sound, but merge it with a decade of Motown like decadence is incredible to me. Uh, and then on top of that, you let the listeners so deep into your story while being so candid. And I really think that's a true accomplishment as a singer songwriter. I agree with everything you said. I'm actually going to give this an A minus because of the fact that the last three songs, the one I think is really fun and cute, but I don't think it really fits with the album that well. And the other two, I think, are just a bit unfinished. Not necessarily bad, but just feel a bit unfinished. And I wish there was a bit more, but there is no denying the impact of this album. And I do think it deserves the acclaim that it's received. Uh, what a beautiful album and what a voice. And uh, listening to this, you can't help but wonder what else she would have done. Yep. And then hearing that she was playing with Prince and that stuff, that when you said that, and we went back to that earlier question of would she still have had a presence, I changed my opinion just a little bit because I didn't factor in how cool or how much more music there would have been to be made with other artists and artists that respect the music wholeheartedly, like like the purple one or or who knows where it would have gone. Yeah, it's something that we'll never know, sadly, but fortunately she did leave us with this and what a legacy to leave everybody with. Just an album like this is incredible. And with that being said, what is your favorite song on the album? Tears Dry on Their Own is my favorite jam on this whole piece. Uh, you know, Ain't No Mountain High Enough takes me into this mindset and she flips it around. I really, I really love that track. I gotta go with the title track, Back to Black. Just what a brilliant song in every way possible. Just uh, everything about it is perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. Nothing about it should ever be changed. What a great, great song. It really is. It kind of just leaves me speechless. And I forgot to say, I think the video for it's really cool. I don't think the videos for this album are necessarily like the highest production. They're still cool to look at, but the back, the black one really captures the vibe of the song so well, especially with her going to a funeral and it just, uh, uh, what a brilliant piece of art that song and the album is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this one is, I, I already knew ahead of time, you know, that it was one that I enjoyed, but this is one of those albums where it's on a critical sense, it's very hard for me to say anything negative, really, as much as, as I look and try to break it down. Um, and it stands up there and 33 on the 500 for Rolling Stones is insanity. And it's because of how great of an album it was. Yeah, yeah. Can't say it's an undeserved ranking. I can't say that at all. And that does it for Amy Winehouse and Back to Black and our look at the 2000s. I think this was a really cool month for us. As we said, we kind of looked at the albums that aren't complete rarities in Underground, but that appealed to an outside audience slightly outside the mainstream. Yeah, without even thinking about it. Yes. Which is which is even neater. Um, but yeah, what a cool romp through the 2000s. It was a good one. Yes, it was. And uh, now, with November, we are going to go into the 2010s. And we've got something very exciting to start it off. We will be doing our first ever two-part episode. We will be discussing parts one and two of Justin Timberlake's 2013 album, The 2020 Experience. And this is one that we both agreed on. This is an album that we both love a lot and both, I'm sure, have nostalgia for that we haven't really discussed yet. We're going to save it for the podcast, but I know that we both do. Oh, yeah. As far as in my life, I mean, a lot of these other uh, decades have been a little bit blurry, but this one, there's so much cool stuff, so many milestones inside of it and inside of this album. So it'll be fun to, uh, I got a few, I got a few anecdotal takes uh, throughout this one. And, and we get to do it with a friend of ours as well. So it's going to be a really neat one. Yes, we do. So 
It'll be a lot of fun. But while you're waiting for that, in the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Leave us a nice review. Feel free to support us with a subscription if you want to. And uh, until then, get your suit and tie ready for the 2020 experience. Peace. Thank you.